morning, Village. It's good to see you, relaxing in chairs and white chairs, and I, I, am, I was thrilled last week, and I'm thrilled this week to see the church being the church. And it doesn't really matter if we're inside, whether we're outside, um, we are still God's church, and we are still really doing what we just saying, bringing glory to God and glory in the highest. It just so happens that the world gets to see it a little bit more now. And which is, isn't that great how God works? He takes something that maybe was intended for evil or maybe just was shutting churches down and he's using it to spread the gospel and spread his glory. And so thank you for doing that. Last week we even had a number of suggestions. Why don't we do this more often? Um, because this is great out here on the lawn and um, it's just great testimony. This year our theme has been to remember and celebrate. And so in the middle of worship, we'll get back to worship in a, mi a minute, I wanted to um, give you an update on where my family's at and where we're at with Susie's care. It's been a, a while since, I, it's been six months since I've given a, an update in church, and so I want to read a, a letter. It's easier for me if I do it with letter, because I'll get all emotional and everything. But um, dear Village family, it was a year ago on Wednesday that Susie and I, here we go, right, up, right from the start. <laughs> that Susie and I sat with our doctor and heard the diagnosis of her fourth stage cancer that would change our lives. This started a journey of doctor's visits, procedures, and challenges unlike anything we had ever experienced before as Susie was given anywhere from six months to a year to live. It also started a journey where you over and over showed us what it meant to be church family. You have loved us, prayed for us, fed us, given us rides, showed us what it he laughed and cried with us and ministered in every way possible. You have listened to the Holy Spirit and the verses you have shared and the encouragements you have given that were miraculously at just the right time. You have truly lifted our arms like Aaron and her did Moses. And you have lifted us up and helped us have the strength to keep going and keep trusting God. Thank you for doing this both in the good days and some of the darkest nights of the soul. You have been a testimony for Christ, not just to us, but for everyone we talk to, because we talk about you guys a lot. You are dear to us, and words cannot convey our thanks to you. Thank you for giving us a sweet year with each other and with church that we cherish even in the middle of difficulty. As we shared a year ago, our heart's desire has been to see God's name lifted high, no matter the circumstances or what his will was. So many verses have been meaningful to us, but one that kept giving encouragement was Daniel 3, 17 and 18. As Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were facing sure death, they beautifully proclaimed, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. All along, we have known that our God is able to heal Susie, but even if he sovereignly chose not to, we would still worship and trust him. And so our hope has been that all would know that this was for God's glory, no matter the outcome, and that we would all be reminded of the brevity of life and choose to use each day serving Christ with nothing held back. We have chosen to hope in the Lord even when very little hope was given. On Thursday, Susie once again sat with one of her doctors for an update without me this time because of the whole COVID situation. Truthfully, we have come to not often look forward to updates. This time, however, the news was much different. The area...
the area where Susie's colon tumor was removed has no cancer. And the tumors in the liver have shrunk to tiny spots that do not require surgery. Amen. There are no new tumors, and her liver has returned to normal liver function and is growing healthy tissue. Beyond that, the doctor said he thinks she should be possibly able to go off chemo soon. We were shocked. This was the first time in our journey that we had received good news, <laughs> and it was great news. It was a complete turnaround that represents God power, God's powerful hand at work. This same doctor several months ago gently informed me of multiple new tumors in the liver and that they had just done the best they could and the prognosis was not good. But God. Two powerful words, but God. But God had other plans, and we rejoice. The diagnosis of six months to live or maybe a year or two were not a hindrance for our God when he chose to heal. So today we celebrate and rejoice in our Lord together. We know that it is not always God's will to heal, but when he does, it is to accomplish his work, and we are to take notice and give him glory. Our prayer for you is that this answer to prayer will strengthen your faith. In 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, and 3, 3 we read, thank you. We read, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith that no one be moved by these afflictions. May your faith be firm so that there is no storm that can stifle your faith. We also pray our journey will draw you closer to Jesus and open doors for the gospel. What if this story opened doors to be able to share the gospel with your neighbors, with your family, with your coworkers? May this also be a signpost in your life and in your children's life that God answers prayer. Amen? You have been fervent and diligent in praying for us. Village never questioned that God answers prayer. It will be according to his will and not ours, and we may not always understand the answer, but he always answers for his glory and our ultimate good. Rest in that. This good news does not end Susie's journey. There will still be some chemo and at least one procedure, and we will have to be vigilant in scans and tests as the cancer can return at any time. But this reprieve is an opportunity to continue living for Christ daily and seeing how he might want to use the next few years for the kingdom. That's exciting. This year has caused us to evaluate our priorities and evaluate what really matters, and we hope it does the same for you. We are all to number our days and use them for the king. So thank you, village family. Continue loving each other in ways you have loved us. May your faith be strengthened, your hope be in our Lord, and your actions be bold for God Almighty. All glory to God, Ron and Susie and family. Thank you for your prayers. This morning, we're going to be continuing in 2 Thessalonians 3. As you, you find your seats or blanket or chairs or whatever, uh, we're going to be continuing in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and Paul is just going to get very practical and meddle a little bit today, just in ordinary life and what it means to follow God in ordinary life. And so we're going to talk about work ethic today. And we don't always think of work ethic as a very spiritual activity. Paul is going to tell us otherwise that our work ethic actually is very much tied to our spiritual maturity. 
When you think of someone that has a good work ethic, can you give me some words? I'm going to step forward. I'm going to mess up the camera and everything. Uh, what are some words that would represent someone that has a good work ethic? Honest? Reliable? Dependable? Diligent? Okay. Perseveres? Hardworking? I didn't hear that one. I know. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Always reliable. <laughs> what about someone who doesn't have a good work ethic? How would you, what are words we might use for someone, we're in church, um, what are words we might use for someone that does not have a good work ethic? Lazy? What? Double ought. Okay. <laughs> Clueless? I'm feeling the love. <laughs> what was that one? Unteachable. Thank you. Thank you. Some of the words I have down, in fact, one of them comes from the title this morning. Um, sometimes we might call them a mooch, right? Because they're mooching off other people. If it, Not a hard worker, not a good work ethic, maybe um, not willing to provide for themselves, a mooch, someone that sponges off others. Leeches off others, a freeloader, bums off someone. Those are just some of the words that came up in my reading and, and the thesaurus. You know, that's always handy. And, and this is very pertinent for today because one of the things you keep hearing as a description of the culture is that, that we have an aging adolescent population. And so you have this picture of the 30-year-old in their parents' basement, not working, mooching off mom and dad and playing video games all day. Well, we fooled our kids. We have no basement. Um, and, and none of you do in California, which is nice. And so Paul is going to take this idea of, of, is that an example of what a godly man or woman should be? Someone that is mooching off others or sponging off others? Or does, are there words for that person that directly affect their testimony, that affect how they are presenting Christ to the world? Now remember, as we've gone through First and Second Thessalonians, the big picture here is how do we please God? And he's talking about essentials of a life pleasing to God. And sometimes he's been very theological, and at other times he's just been down into the weeds of daily life. And this is one of those times. So the title this morning is No Mooching, which is probably enough, enough said. But he is going to talk about how we please God comes out in how we work. It comes out in whether or not we work. It comes out in whether or not we're willing to support ourselves, how we view others. And so we please God. Last week we talked about by praying for eternal things. This week as he talks about our daily schedules, it's about obeying what God has called us to do where we're at. And God is pleased when we do the ordinary for his glory, right? And so you don't have to have this great job that is influencing millions for Christ or millions for, for whatever you're doing. He says, do your job that you have and do it well for Christ. And that pleases God. And so obey where God has you. And this is a broader section of, are we using our time? Are we using our abilities to please God? And one of the ways we do is by being diligent in work and by providing for our families. Just very practical, right? And so he comes to some, some commands in this text. Turn in your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians 3. 6 through 12 we'll be looking at this morning and we'll finish the passage next week but 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 verses 6 through 12 
And he's already set them up. He's going to say this is a command. And he's going to be stronger on this because this is a real problem in the church with some, as we're going to find out. But he's already set them up in last week's passage in verse 4. I don't know if you remember. It said, and we have confidence in the Lord about this, that you are doing and will do the things we command. And so he's already said, you know what? You're obeying great in some things. And I know you're going to keep obeying. And, And we left it there last week. This week starts... Now we command you, brothers. And in verse 6, we see really his main thought for this whole section. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. And that's, if you view that as a summary verse for this whole paragraph, that's a great way to think of it. The main thought here is don't enable or condone those who are characterized by irresponsible irresponsible idleness don't enable or condone those characterized by irresponsible idleness and we see the seriousness like i said of how paul approaches this now we command you brother and this is a word that would have been used for a military general as he commanded his troops so this is not a would you think about doing this this is a i am commanding you to get in line on this and it's a command and then he softens it with the word brothers because Paul is brilliant at, at bringing up difficult subjects, but in a loving way. And so he says, you're my brothers. I care about you, brothers and sisters. You could translate that. But yeah, this is important. This is a command. And just to add to the importance of the command, he says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, if you had to go to like the final authority, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is, is, is it, Right. So, so he's commanding, he's saying, no, this isn't from me, this is from God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he has set the stage for this command being vitally important to the church. And then he says that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. And we see that he, he begins by saying, I want you to distance yourself. And, and the word for keep away, or the, the idea behind keep away from the brother This is part of church discipline. And so what he's bringing up is that there is a process of church discipline here, and there's several steps down the road in that process. If you remember, in in 1 Thessalonians, he said, warn those that are idle. And and he encouraged them to be working hard. And we have a number of verses that this is not new. Aspire to live quietly. Mind your own affairs. Work with your hands as we instructed you. So 1 Thessalonians was the first step in church discipline where he taught and he warned them. And he said, yeah, you're out of line here, but let's come back in line. Now he's gotten reports back that they didn't listen. Some didn't listen. And that's important to understand. This is not the majority of the church, but a few in the church didn't listen. And now not only are idle and not working, but they are being disobedient, right? And we're going to find out later in the text that they're not only being disobedient, but they are actively trying to be a subversive influence in the church. And, And so... There's just all kinds of problems here in a mess. But when we read that you keep away from any brother, this is the later stages of church discipline where you either excommunicate or you start to withdraw fellowship from them. And he's saying, do not condone this. Do not tolerate this. This, incidentally, is a command to the church at first. He's going to command the idle person later, but he's, he's a little frustrated with the church that they haven't done something about this that they have allowed this to happen. He says, 
someone walking in idleness. And, and words are so important. And every word in God's, God's God-breathed word is important. And the, the idea of idleness was, again, going with the military metaphor. It was the, uh, it was the picture of when troops would get out of line. And so you have all the troops lined up and then someone would get out of line or someone would fall behind and stop marching and, and they wouldn't be in sync. And, and so this, this has the idea of idleness and disorderly conduct all, all brought together. And imagine what happens when a group is marching and someone decides to stop in the middle of the group. Who does that affect? Everyone behind them. And it affects the picture of the whole thing. Every now and then when you're watching the Rose Parade, well, not this coming year, but when we were watching the Rose Parade, you'd see a band and someone would get out of step or someone would trip and everyone behind them just sort of scatters. That's the picture here of what idleness does to community and what idleness does to the church of Christ. So it meant to be irresponsible, to be disorderly, undisciplined, someone that was doing the wrong things instead of the right things. Also, if you look at the words, it says walking in idleness. And the idea here is living a a life of idleness. They're characterized by idleness. This is not a passage that says if you go on vacation, you are sinning. Don't go there. Go on vacation. Enjoy some time with your family. That's not what this means. But someone whose life is characterized by idleness and a refusal to work. And so that's, that's sort of the groundwork of what Paul is setting of what he's dealing with. So it's not just getting laid off. It's not just losing your job, as many are dealing with this right now. And this, as I come to this text, I was talking with Suze, and I'm like, so, so we have a number that are laid off right now and that are struggling to get work through no fault of their own. That is not what Paul is using the word idleness for here. This word is used for when there's work available and someone refuses to do it. When there are possibilities and someone is no longer trying, that's what this word is referring to. And so Paul warns the big picture, don't enable or condone those characterized by irresponsible idleness. But rather, as a church, come alongside, show discipline, but show words and encouragement that will change their behavior. What one does reflects on the church. And so it matters. It matters. The rest of the passage, we'll look at why. Why did Paul command this? And we'll look at five quick reasons why as we go through the verses of why this issue is important to us as believers, why this issue is important to to God. First one is the example of spiritual maturity is to work hard. The example of spiritual maturity is to work hard. So the converse is true, right? An example of spiritual immaturity is to be slothful and not to work hard. And so he, he... Paul starts with their own example in verse 7. For you yourselves know, and he's bringing up, you've seen this. You should be aware of this. Hello. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. We were not idle when we were with you. And in fact, we know in 1 Thessalonians, it says they toiled day and night. In verse 8, it brings that up again in 2 Thessalonians, that we toiled and labored night and day. They worked hard to not be a burden to people. And so Paul's appealing to example here, which is what we do in discipleship. Hopefully we're discipling each other. Hopefully our elders and pastors are discipling and parents are discipling kids and we're discipling each other, helping each other walk with the Lord. And Paul's saying, we weren't idle. We weren't undisciplined. We weren't out of line. 
This could even apply to at work. So, so if you think, I have a job, I'm okay, I want you to think, am I slothful at work? Am I idle at work sometimes, or am I, am I working hard? Because the example is toil and labor, which are words for hard work. In verse 9, he comes back to the example as well. It was not because we do not have that right, and we'll get to that at another point, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. And so Paul's appealing to both sides of an example here. He says, follow our example. We have shown you night and day what it's like, and you're going to abandon that? But then he says, also be an example. Village, every one of your lives is an example to someone around you. People are watching you. And people are watching us even in the ordinary things of life as in how we work, how, how we provide for our families, how diligent we are in what we do. And so Paul is saying this, but he also lived it. And isn't that, isn't that comforting? If we say things to our kids and we're not living them, man, they are the first to sniff it out. They're like, you're a hypocrite. Well, okay, they don't say it that way. They're like, but every now and then I have like, but dad, that's not what you do. Thank you for sharing. You're right. I'm going to work on that. <laughs> um, but, but Paul and Silas and Timothy, their words match their actions. There's an old saying that I love as it applies to this. What you do speaks so loudly, I can't hear what you say. It's an old proverb. What you do speaks so loudly, I can't hear what you say. And Paul and Silas and Timothy are appealing to what they did. And it spoke loudly. Another part of this spiritual maturity, I think, is our testimony. We are, our, our goal is to share the gospel with as many people as possible, to share the good news of what Jesus has done for us, that he has died on the cross, he has forgiven our sins, and so we live for him now. He has radically changed us. And if we're to, if we're to present that in our words, we've got to live that in our life. We have to show changed lives, that we are willing to, to work hard, that we are willing to not be idle. It's part of our testimony of responsibility and maturity that gives a foundation by which we can share Christ. There's a story I love, and I could, I could share lots of stories from the business world, from back when I was in the business world, and I would often hear things um, from bosses, and, and they knew I was a Christian company, and they, they'd often say, why is it that the Christian workers are our worst workers? And I'd say, I'm so sorry. That should not be. The believers should be your best workers. They should be the most excellent, do the most excellent work and the hardest workers the story I ran across sort of illustrates that. Ben and John worked as janitors for the same company. Ben felt his Christian testimony should be reflected in his work. John knew this as well, but never seemed to let that interfere with a good conversation. One day, Ben was busily washing windows. John was busy too, busy talking to Ben. Ben wanted to stop and talk, but he knew he had to stay focused to do a good job. He was soon glad he had resisted the temptation to goof off, in the reflection of the glass, he saw the supervisor walking up the stairs behind them. Ben continued to clean. John continued to talk. The boss continued to observe. So, <laughs> this is great. Several minutes later, John turned and noticed the boss. He greeted him with a quick, oh, hi, and moved along to his area. Later, John asked Ben, why didn't you tell me the boss was standing there? Well, well not to sound mean or anything, Ben replied. But Christ was standing there the whole time, and that didn't seem to bother you. John got the point and worked more faithfully from that point on. 
Paul's first point when it comes to not being idle and to working hard. The example of spiritual maturity is to work hard, to do our jobs well. Now, for those of you in the workplace, that means do your job in the workplace well. For those of you between jobs, that means search for a job well and and with all diligence. For those of you that have the incredible job at home of, of discipling young ones, that means put your heart and soul into it and to work hard at that because that is part of your testimony in every one of those areas. To point number one, the example of spiritual maturity is to work hard. Point number two in verse eight, we rob others when we are not self-supporting. We rob others, and I'm just using the words that are in there. We rob others when we are not self-supporting. Verse eight, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, the idea of robbing, but with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. So he's saying, yeah, we, we didn't look to you for support without some kind of reciprocity, without some kind of payment. We didn't expect you to just provide for us. And, and that's a problem is when we start expecting, oh, so-and-so is just going to provide this. So-and-so is just going to provide this. I can ask for this. And then we start to mooch off people. And, and, the, and the problem here that Paul has mentioned, we, we should not be that way, but we should be self-supporting. We rob others when we are not self-supporting. Now, now, I don't eat anyone's bread without paying for it. That doesn't mean he didn't ever take a free meal. It doesn't mean he didn't go over to someone's house for dinner or that someone took him to ancient Taco Bell and paid for him. That's not what it meant. But this was a systematic seeking support and a living from someone else. It's imposing on someone else for your livelihood. And so the frequency matters here. Dependence matters here. And he's saying, we didn't expect you to provide our livelihood. But rather, we worked hard, toil and labor. We were night and day, not just day, but night and day, that we might not be a burden to you. And so they worked hard even at work. Like I said, 1 Thessalonians 2.9, he mentions it again. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden for you. So he's repeated this a couple times. He wants them to get this. Because this is a a problem. Now, when we talk about being a burden on someone else, really, we we need to be honest with that. When when we start expecting things from others, when we start being a burden on others, now we are are crossing the line into self-centered and selfish behavior, right? Because now I am expecting someone else to put out their resources for me so I can relax and not put out my resources. let's, Let's call it what it is. That's selfishness. This is what children do. And so Paul is saying, don't be selfish. Don't impose on others for your own gain. This is not loving your neighbor as yourself, which is one of the great two commandments. And so we want to understand that when we don't seek to support ourselves, we are robbing others. Now again, Paul is not talking about unexpected circumstances. And we're going to look at that balance a little later in some scriptures because we know from scripture we're we're to help each other in those times. We're to come alongside each other. But when there is an expectation and no longer an effort, then we are are compromising our testimony and crossing over into sin. You know, so, so this also applies not only if you don't have a job, but it applies it on the job. If you're just coasting or getting by at work, because you're expecting your coworkers to pick up the slack, you're being a burden to others. 
and that's selfish behavior. You're robbing others of their time and their energy. And, and a bigger picture that struck me as I was reading this, if I'm expecting someone else to use their resources on me, I am deliberately keeping them from using them for the kingdom. Ouch. That steps on toes. And so Paul's, his second point is, you're robbing others when you're not self-supporting. So, so let's get busy. Third thing he says in verse 9, third reason, just because you can get someone to provide for you doesn't mean you should. I would repeat this several times. Just because you can get someone to provide for you doesn't mean you should. In verse 9, we read, it was not because we do not have that right, but to give you and ourselves an example to imitate. And that first phrase there, a a preacher, someone that was full-time, they had a right to demand payment. In fact, itinerant preachers would go around and they would preach and they would demand an income and they made a healthy income. And, And Paul is saying, we chose not to do that because we wanted to set a different example for you. And they, and they wanted to be set apart from these false teachers as well. And so he's someone that had a right to demand this, but chose not to, because even though all things might be lawful, not all things are beneficial. Not all things are good. Because he cares about others, and he's thinking about others. And so when we read a verse like that, we, like we've already said, It should remind us not to expect handouts, not to expect someone to help us, not to to expect that someone else will be our backstop. Even though in God's church that should happen, we're to work hard not to depend on others for ordinary expenses. Don't be the guy or girl always asking for something, but be that one that's able to be generous when there's legitimate need and when there is, is something that needs to be done. Fourth reason Paul gives for working hard and for beware of idleness and and confronting idleness. Working and providing are commanded by God and we are not to enable those that refuse. Working and providing are commanded by God and we are not to enable those that refuse. We come to verse 10. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. And he's saying, we've commanded this over and over. And they're, they're using apostolic authority here to command this. We would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Okay, how many of you have said that in your homes before to your kids? Just me. Um, <laughs> I'm a bad father. <laughs> If anyone is not willing to work, let him And Paul is, is using a, a proverbial statement here. Some think he made it up. Some thinks he might have been quoting something. But the point is clear, right? If, if you're going to participate in the spoils, you need to participate in the work. And he elevates this to a command, and he uses that wording again. A, a couple of other things. If anyone is not willing to work, it, that, that's an important word again. Because it's not dealing with unemployment due to circumstances, but a failure to be looking for work. It's, it's refusing to work when work is available. So it's not couldn't work, but wouldn't work. And that's an important distinction here that Paul is making. And he says, don't keep enabling them. If they're not willing to work, then let them not eat. And that's a, that's a, a metaphor for don't keep supporting and condoning this. There has to be some pain 
that gets us off our rear end sometimes and gets us going again. That's just the way we are, right? It's the way, the way I am sometimes. Beyond this, I, theologically, I want us to understand that idleness goes against how God created us. God created us to work and to create. That is the creator's intent. In fact, he says we are made in his image. As he's saying that, what is the image that he's presenting? He's creating, right? And so we're to create. In Genesis 126, keep in mind, this is before the fall, okay? Now, because so many times we can think of, oh, I have to work because of the fall. No, work is harder because of the fall, but work was ordained and a beautiful thing given before the fall. In Genesis 126, God said, let us make man in our own image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish and of the sea and over the birds of the heaven. And he goes on. And that word for dominion is rule, an active rule that their work is to actively be ruling over creation and managing it and, and working it. Two verses later, and God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea. And he goes on from there. And so God ordained Adam and Eve to work before the fall. Now, yes, they made it harder. And we all in our sin make it harder. But don't blame work. Work is actually acting like God, creating like God, creating value, creating product, whatever it is. Work is ordained by God. Ephesians 2.10, it says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17, he talks about Scripture is, is breathed out by God. Then he says, That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And so we are called to work. And that applies to all stages of life. That may, if, if we are in a position where we should be providing for our families, that, that applies to a physical work. If we are able, you know, if we're, if we're retired, I think it applies there to say, don't give up on the kingdom of God. Still be doing good work for the kingdom. Still be finding ways to number your days and bring glory to God. We are created to work, and God values work. Warren Wiersbe writes, and, and I love this, he said, have you noticed that God called people who were busy at work? Moses was caring for sheep. Joshua was Moses' servant before he became Moses' successor. Gideon was threshing wheat when God called him. David was caring for his father's sheep. Our Lord called four fishermen to serve his disciples, and he himself worked as a carpenter. Paul was a tent maker and used his trade to support his own ministry. And he could go on from there. But God chose people who were diligent and seeking and finding ways to use their time wisely and productively. Parents of adult children, I think there's some great application here too. And it's, it, I, I know I've worked with a number of you, and it's hard when our, when our kids get older. But we have to find ways to put their feet to the fire a little bit and make sure that they are working towards providing for themselves and contributing to the family and contributing to the needs. We're teaching them not to be idle, which is so, so important. Now, at the same time, 
We have verses throughout Scripture that says to help those that are in need, to help those that don't have food, and to help those that maybe don't have work. In James 2, 15 and 17, a passage we looked at, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so we have two sides here. Do we, do we not help? If you don't work, you don't eat. Do we help? We, we, we can't just say be warm and filled. We're to give them what they need. And both are true in Scripture, and we have to seek the Holy Spirit for discernment of when to apply each one. One author said, while the church must continue to care for those who genuinely need help, to, as we're going to see in next week's text, verse 13, never tire of doing what is right, it must not tolerate those who are unwilling to work. And so there is a, um, there's a challenge there. How do we do both? And, and, and I think for me, trying to do both is to err on the side of helping, but be watching for when it crosses a line and I'm enabling sin. And, and, and where that line is, I can't say. It depends on the situation. But we're to be challenging each other, spurring one another to love and good work. And so as a church, we need to be mindful of this. Last reason Paul gives for avoiding those that are idle and staying away from idleness in verse 11, idleness opens the door for other sins. Amen? Idleness opens the door for other sins. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. He's play on words with busy there. You're not busy doing what you should be doing, but you're busy bodies telling everyone else what they should be doing. And, and there's an irony there that when someone isn't doing what they should be doing themselves and then they think they're qualified to get in, involved in everyone else's business, ooh. And, and that's what Paul's bringing up. We hear some of you, and it's not everyone, but some of you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. And he's repeating the issue again, adding a description of the offense. Again, he says, walk in idleness. This, is a, a, this has been a... Um, characteristic of their life over a period of time. Not just losing a job, not just getting laid off, but something that has become characteristic for them. And now they're meddling and causing unrest. They weren't doing what they should have been doing, and so that opens the door for others' others' temptation. I think of David and Bathsheba. Where Where should David have been? He should have been with his army in the battle. That's what a king did. Instead, he was lounging at home, not doing what he should do, and it got him in a lot of trouble because that opened the door for sin. I think so many times our idleness can do that. I warn young men all the time, idleness often leads to failure in pornography because idleness is a a tool that Satan will just use to jump in and to twist and, and to drive us to sin in a variety of different ways. In verse 12, Paul concludes. He says, Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he's addressing the idle people directly. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. And the idea here is, command. again, he uses command and urge. He's using strong language again. He uses the authority of Jesus Christ again, and he's really mirroring verse 6. But he says, do your work quietly. Do it in a, 
do ordinary things to bring glory to God. Don't expect praise. Don't expect more and more for doing your work. Work that is ordinary is good. There is no shame in hard work, no matter what the job is. Well, well, maybe there's some exceptions to that. The wording here is literally settle down and do your work. Just do it. Do what's right. Be content with the job that is placed before you. Be content and do well if you're flipping burgers. Be content and do well if you're shipping packages. Be content and do well if you're engineering a product. Be content and do well if you are raising kids to follow Christ. Be content and do your work well. And then he says, and earn your own living. Don't expect others to pay your way. Real practical verses, right? Steps on our toes. I think it steps on all of our toes at, at times. But God here is reminding us how we work affects our relationships with others and affects our testimony for him. You know, if you're looking for work, make it your full-time job to look for work. If you're in school, be diligent and do your best and give it the time that it needs. Don't just abandon all hope at looking for your perfect job, but take ordinary work for the glory of God. And then as things happen, we are a church family that we can resource each other and, and we, can, we can help each other both financially and in other ways as we change lanes and as we find ways to, to work and support ourselves. Guys, this is just ordinary stuff, talking about work and money. But it affects how people view Jesus Christ. And so it's important. How are you going to number your days? How are you going to use your time to reflect Christ well? That's the bigger challenge that Paul is making here and the challenge that we'll go into in verses 13, 14, and 15 next week. But let's pray. Lord God, I pray that we would number our days, that we would seek to honor you, Lord, that we would um, seek that every moment we can use for your glory. Lord, maybe that's with extra time helping others around the church, helping the church, Lord. Maybe that is um, doing extra tasks at work and helping others that way, Lord. But help us to be people that have a mature reputation, Lord, that shine and reflect well on you, even in this fallen world. Lord, even in secular companies, I, I have never seen a company that gets mad at hard work but rather it can open the door for the gospel. It can open the door for deeper conversations that are so meaningful and so important. I pray that we would serve you in that way, Lord God, in your precious name.